1: Salutations and face front true believer. Welcome to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. It won't have escaped the notice of regular listeners to the podcast that the Marvel Universe is a big deal for many of us here. The 23 Marvel movies are responsible for 22.6 billion dollars of box office and six of the 20 highest grosses of all time. They are, by some distance, the biggest pop cultural phenomenon of the 21st century. But is their enormous success dependent upon something rather deeper than worldwide marketing and character recognition? Comics geeks like me love to say that they're a modern mythology, but are they? Do they conform to the rules of the classics? Robert Eagleston is a professor of contemporary literature and. Thought at Royal Holloway, University of London. And like me, he is a confirmed Marvelite. He's got a book coming out called Truth and Wonder, a literary introduction to Plato and Aristotle. On Facebook, he mentioned that he was using the Marvel Cinematic Universe to explain Aristotle's poetics to his students. And I thought, well, we had to do a podcast on that. Robert, hello and welcome. How are you?
0: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really well, thank you.
1: Good well I mean look it 's commonplace to say that anything from a soap opera to a disappointing football season are like a Greek tragedy, but does the Marvel Universe and the numerous stories in it actually fit the genuine bill of Greek tragedy? Does it obey the
0: rules Well, the thing is that the the idea that there are rules is is a kind of uh, weird 18th century invention but what i what I found was that when I was uh, t- teaching my students about Aristotle. What he says about Greek tragedy and about Greek drama fits so perfectly the Marvel cinematic universe that there were all sorts of correlations. Uh, different things about character, about fate, about enjoyment, about even enjoying visual effects that it just matched really, really well.
1: Aristotle would have been a bit big industrial light and magic guy then.
0: Uh, well, he says that the, the first form of pleasure, I mean, the, the lowest form of pleasure we have when we see a, a play is the visual pleasure, is the pleasure of like what it looks like. So that's the kind of CGI. <laughs> stuff. And I, I think, yeah. you know, we all like a big space battle, you know. Absolutely. Well, it's a big space battle, a big, you know, big battle at sea. It's kind of the same thing, isn't it, really?
1: Exactly. I mean, first up, like, first up for the ignorance, i.e. me, who was Aristotle? What's his, what's his origin story and power set?
0: Oh, okay. So, Aristotle was one of the most famous philosophers in the Western tradition. He's one of the people who kind of founded uh, science and philosophy, and his ideas turn out to underlie all sorts of things that we take for granted every day. He was the son of a doctor. He was born in northern Greece, and when he was about 17, he went to Athens. That was the intellectual capital of the eastern Mediterranean, and he studied with Plato, when Plato find well, he started with Plato and was Plato's kind of best student and kind of rival in a Marvel superhero kind of way. <laughs> um in fact Plato says that he was like a cult being born, kicking to get out of his mother. So but when Plato died, he wasn't made uh, leader of Plato's academy, he wasn't made the chief of the X Men, and he went off in a huff and he went Did he off- form the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? Well, he he more or less did, but I'll come to that in a second. So Plato <laughs> had the academy right in the centre of Athens. Uh, Aristotle went away. He did kind of med- um, uh, marine experiments. He went to become tutor of Alexander the Great, who was like the Thanos of his day. <laughs> well, Aristotle, uh, when Alexander went to invade uh, Persia, Aristotle went back to Athens, and he founded his brotherhood of evil mutants. He founded the Lyceum, like a sprite. A counter school to, to Plato's Academy outside the boundaries of the city, and that's where he taught for years and years, taught and wrote his, gave lectures public and private, and developed his own kind of philosophy and school.
1: I've been to the Lyceum; it's, it's, it's about, you can see it in the open air now, can't you? It's just it's just on a street in Athens.
0: I've been, I've, the Lyceum is beautiful. I've been there actually. It's it's uh, I mean, for a thing that named dance halls in the future, it's not very big, but it is uh, stunning.
1: Yeah, so I mean, if if one were able to transplant Aristotle and place himself in front of a of a Marvel blockbuster, and in fact, give him a Disney Plus subscription and say, "Come on, Aristotle, make your way through this." What would Aristotle's analysis be of this kind of this string of twenty three movies that hop through time and are all interconnected and have a range of characters that all spark off one another, but are all in their own way kind of about the making and testing of heroes?
0: Well, i, I think he'd ha- I think he'd have a lot to say. That's why why it's so interesting. I think the first thing is that. And one of the things I noticed with my students is that everybody knows who these people are. Everyone knows who Spider-Man is. Everyone knows who Iron Man is. Uh, just as you said, they're a huge pop culture thing in exactly the same way for the ancient Greeks. They all all the ancient Greeks going to the theater. They knew who Oedipus was. They knew who Hector and Achilles were. So the stories are always kind of retellings of characters that you know. So that's the first thing I think that he'd have noticed. Aristotle believed that uh, drama was about action. And by action, he didn't just mean kind of fighting and explosions. He meant people making decisions, people making ethical and moral decisions. And all the way through the Marvel films, you see characters making decisions. What makes Marvel superheroes better than Superman is that Superman is very boring. Superman never makes a choice. He always does the right thing. And if he does something that appears to be evil, you always know it's a trick because actually he's doing the right thing, whereas all the Marvel characters are constantly making choices well, this is I mean going through it the
1: the the standout one is civil war, isn't it where there's a terrible disaster which is at the fault of the Avengers, and they're told by government agencies that they're going to be put under government control, and we expect that it's going to be captain america because he's a government you know he wears the flag as a government agent we expect that he will be the one who will enforce the will of the government and that iron man the kind of rebellious tony stark sybaritic boozing good time guy, will be the guy that says no you can't tell me what to do but actually the decisions are completely reversed aren't they cap is the one who stands up for individual individual responsibility and it is the surprisingly frightened and terrified tony stark who says no we need to be put in check
0: well, that that's right. Because why we make decisions, why we make moral choices, is a combination of of kind of what's inside us, our characters and dispositions, and the world outside us, the, the the kind of situations we find ourselves in. And drama is about the interaction of the of the inner and the outer, if you like. And when you look at it like that, in in the in Civil War, you can see that both cap- the decisions they make come out of their very profound moral dispositions so the thing about captain america is that he's not just a propaganda tool and this is what the falcon of winter soldier is about for captain america america stands for a kind of uh an ethical and moral position not just americanness but doing the right thing so he yeah. believes very much in duty and doing the right thing whether that's american or not So he's not going to be told by somebody what his duty is. He believes he knows what the duty is. And that's why he goes off and doesn't accept the control of the government. Whereas Tony Stark is a kind of technocrat who is always happy to... I mean, Tony Stark is fundamentally intellectually vain, isn't he? He's vain. He wants to show off. He wants to break new ground. He's hubris. Yeah, but it, but it's, it's both a good and a bad thing. It's what leads him to new inventions and to become a hero. But it's also his kind of crucial weakness, his wanting yeah. to show off. But wanting to show off means you're dependent on other people. And if you're dependent on other people, you have to end up doing what they say, which is why he goes with the government. So you can see that their moral choices come right out of their character. And I think Aristotle would have really appreciated and understood that.
1: Yeah, I think you said something. We, we were talking about this before the podcasting. You uh, you mentioned something that uh, that there's nothing pitiable if enemies or strangers fight. So players should focus on relationships, brother with brother, son and father. And you know the the, the idea that two friends should fall apart so tragically and catastrophically is is really fulfilling and really kind of you know, just extremely appealing to an audience.
0: Oh yes, yeah, so that's another thing that I that actually I really having talked about Aristotle with my students, it's one of the things that I really noticed in the MCU is that the really crucial fights are not between like the goodies and the baddies. I mean, that's kind of really obvious. That's Superman fights evil monsters. The really interesting fights are when they fight between each other. I mean, that's real Mm -hmm. drama. That's like heroes fighting each other, brothers fighting each other. And and in fact, the the more you look at the uh, MCU, the more you see it's the internal conflict that is really where the drama comes from.
1: Yeah. And in, in Civil War, you actually see pretty much every character. Firstly, they're, they're subdivided into two groups, aren't they? Essentially, yeah. you've got who, it, it, and, and which is a great marketing tool for a movie anyway, whose side are you on? But we essentially see every character fight every other character individually. And every little interaction, every little fight is based in character. It reveals who they are and what their disposition is, is not they? And there's, there's, there's the great bit where Spider Man, who's a teenager, He's fighting with the Falcon, I think, and it's not so much the fact that he's fighting with him; he's really annoying the Falcon because of his constant wisecracking and his inability to take this incredibly serious situation seriously. And I just love that as a as a kind of character juxtaposition thing.
0: Yeah. So when when they call them action movies in the Marvel case, it doesn't just mean explosions and fighting; it means they are about what actions people choose, and and the choosing reveals their character. I mean, that's one of the reasons. Well, whatever you think about superheroes, you know, I, I love superheroes, but whatever you think about them, they are incredibly well-crafted works of art. And that's, again, one of the things that Aristotle says, he says that the, our first kind of pleasure is the the special effects, the what it looks like. The second is admiring the kind of craft of it. Exactly as you've just said, every interaction, uh, every bit of conversation is character-revealing, is action-revealing, and is you 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 can only admire the, the the writer's craft in putting it all together, but but I think there's something really important that, that is the third form of pleasure, if you like, that Aristotle talks about, which is the feeling of it starts in in catharsis. So mm. the the bit that I am. Um, that my students talked about a lot and I think is very moving is when Captain America is fighting Thanos in end game and he's knocked down, he's knocked down again and again and again, and he keeps getting up and yeah. everybody is kind of welling up. And I remember I seeing at the cinema people kind of moaning and really upset. And then of course there's the return of all the heroes and you have this amazing kind of outpouring of emotion, this kind of catharsis. Yeah, and what Aristotle says about that is that the catharsis is is um, our responses through pity and fear, but catharsis is a way of of and it sounds very boring, but learning. That's how we come mm. to understand things about ourselves and about the world. So our third form of enjoyment is exactly what we're doing now: is thinking about and understanding and responding to the the Marvel superhero films. You know with not just with our eyes enjoying the the visual or barring the plot, but thinking about it about how it shapes us and moves us
1: there's interplay between the really, really geeky sort of you know comic book guy detail, such as the fact that you know cap cap is able to pick up the hammer, yeah, which means you know finally you know he's worthy, but that's not just a bit of comic book minutiae that's not just the the magical rules of the magical game. it shows you a moral kind of. It, well, it reveals a moral aspect of him, does it? It's not even moral; it was there the whole time, Absolutely. but it's taken this kind of path for it to be to be uh, you know to be brought to the fore. I wanted to ask you though about you talk about the end of Endgame. There, the, the other incredibly powerful moment in the whole cycle is the is uh, the end of Infinity War, effectively the end of Part One, where the heroes lose comprehensively yeah. and half of the heroes die. And that does, You know, we've got a generation of people under the age of, of 20 now who are scarred by Spider-Man dissolving into, uh, yeah. into dust and apologizing as he dies. Is there, a, is there an Aristotelian dimension to that?
0: Oh, I, I think absolutely. So I talked earlier on about the state of the external world. So one of the things that tragedy is about for Aristotle is our interaction with what happens to us. How we cope with it and how the, the things that happen to us can deform our character. Okay, so think about mm. Tony Stark at the beginning of Endgame. He's oh, all the way through, actually. He is kind of his character is deformed by the things that have happened to him. Okay, and yeah. that's one of the things that tragedy is about. Um, and you can see it with the Winter Soldier on TV at the moment. He's responding to the things that have shaped and formed him. So this is absolutely the the real, the kind of stuff of tragedy is our, how we respond to our circumstances and how we either let it or don't let it shape or, or deform our character. And again, that's about that thing about catharsis, pity and fear and understanding, you know, our limits in the world. Because one of the other things about the superheroes in those films is that they are, I mean, they're better than us. Of course they are. But they're also quite like us. They're not Mm. perfect like uh, like gods or like Superman, but we can recognize their flaws. So we know that, for example, Thor, and a bit that I find very moving is when Thor meets his mum. Yes. In the the, the time heist. Yeah, she's dead
1: and he has to go back in time to perform one of the tasks to, to, you know, to get the Infinity Gems. And he runs into his mother.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's he's really moved by that. And after all, you know, mourning is is part of what it is to to be a human being. And we see this kind of incredible moment where he's mourning his mum and yet his mum is there and he's kind of confused. And and like, Thor is a great, big, strong, amazing man. And yet we see all his weakness. I mean, he hmm. runs away during that task, doesn't he? And uh, yeah. Rocket Raccoon has to get him back on track. And we see him not wanting to do his job. And we see all his flaws and weaknesses. And haven't we, after all, haven't we all, when we have fucked up and when we've messed up and done something wrong, don't we want to kind of sit and drink beer and play on our playstations for a while? That's a very hmm. kind of human thing. I mean, it's interesting, actually, you know,
1: the fact that also that Tony Stark also meets his dad on the time heist. Where we, we you, you, it's almost like they're making the rounds of the underworld, meeting the deceased and learning from them. Because you know, the whole Iron Man arc is how a horrible self-interested dick becomes through experience and adversity and failure the cunning eye sacrifice his life
0: that's a great point i hadn't thought about it being uh, like a trip through the underworld but that is exactly right isn't it they're meeting mm. the dead people from the past and they give them advice just like in homeric epics they meet the dead mm. and the dead tell them things exactly as you say i hadn't thought about that at all that's a really great point
1: do I get course credit? Fantastic.
0: You absolutely do. Yeah, you can have
1: a <laughs> <laughs> I was also playing kind of spot the theme with some of the other characters. And obviously, Captain America is like he's a man out of time yeah. who goes on a lengthy journey through a world that's changed and kind of has to renew himself through this, this, this trial. And, and, and the Russo brothers, the director, said that when they took on the Captain America project, it was like they took on the world's greatest patriots and broke him down. You know, know, destroyed his faith in his government, destroyed his faith in the flag and made him sort of have to rediscover what was good about that through his own efforts. And finally, the end of the quest is he gets what he always wanted, which is, you know, to live in the 1950s.
0: Yeah. So I have a slightly different take on that, though, again, which is an Aristotelian take. So for Aristotle, our virtues are the middle point between two extremes. So to be courageous is neither to be cowardly at one end or kind of rash and arrogant on the other. Yes. Choose the thing in between. And, and each of the heroes, on, you can see them on this kind of scale. So, for example, the thing about Captain America is that his thing is about duty. He's got, not got too little duty. In fact, he's got too much duty. He's got too much commitment to duty. And because mm. of that, he can't have you know, a fulfilled life. He can't have a lovely, normal life. He can't have the woman he wants to marry and yes. in love with. And so he, he has to learn, in a way, to have less duty. And so the, the whole uh, Sokovia Accords is a way of him learning to have less duty, as it were, to the flag.
1: Yeah, it does absolutely, and that's essentially what the movie "The Winter Soldier" is about, isn't it? You know, this absolutely. is he's had faith in a government which turns out to be fully corrupt, and it's it's for that reason, it's well, and for many other reasons, that's probably probably the best one, isn't it? Although I'd say "Ragnarok," Thor Ragnarok probably beats yeah. "Winter Soldier" in the in, in the movie stakes.
0: I would was, was say, but Thor is also an interesting example of this question of virtue because you know he is terribly kind of vain and, and arrogant and brash, even though he has many good characteristics, and he has to learn to be to have a certain amount of authority and, as it were, vanity in order to lead properly, but not mm. so much as that he's a, he's a kind of um, dick.
1: Yeah. <laughs> now, you said a minute ago that villains are generally quite boring. They, that, that it, we, it's, and actually, I was surprised how few of the villains from the series really stand out in memory. It's like, you know, the Red Skull stands out. Nobody's really, you know, getting excited about running the Accuser, are they? But Thanos, as the real overarching bad guy. Yeah. Um, Is there an Aristotelian take on Thanos? Because, you know, in one respect, he is the god of death created by Jim Stalin as, you know, from that Yeah, that tradition and, you know, the name Thanos echoing Thanatos, the whole thing is a multi-part quest where effectively it's all coming down to the confrontation with Thanos. What would, what is, when Aristotle's sitting there in your local multiplex, Robert, with his popcorn, what's he thinking about Thanos?
0: Well, I mean, Thanos means death in Greek. That's the the Mm -hmm. first thing. And he says, doesn't he, all the time, I am inevitable. In a way, fighting Thanos is is fighting the inevitability of of death. And, and, you know, we're always going to lose that. But I guess there's something about the right kind of death, isn't there? Okay, so uh, Aristotle says, you know, call call no one happy until they're dead. Okay, and what he means by that is that, you know, no one knows what happens in life. You might be King Priam of Troy and suddenly find your city and sons uh, all killed and taken away from you. There's also a sense because we are mortal, we have got to face up to our own deaths and we have got to come to terms with them, it sounds a funny way of saying it, but in as happy a way as possible. And I guess yeah. the thing about Thanos is that he is taking, although he is inevitable, he is taking away that possibility from people, isn't he? With, with the snap. I mean, that's why, as it were, Stark's death right at the end is kind of, be- is kind of beautiful and we're kind of okay with it and it's mourned properly. But as you say, the traumatic being turned to dust, which looks rather prophetic now in the pandemic, doesn't it? The yeah. Being, the being turned to dust is a traumatic, sort of unhappy way to die, if you see what I mean. We could do this all day.
1: There's a couple more things I want to to just like tick tick the box on. One death that the audience was kind of angry about, or some of the audience was angry about, was the death of the Black Widow, yeah. who kind of sacrifices herself in order to save... Hawkeye, who she has this kind of, you know, platonic friendship. You know, it's a very intense partnership, and she is cast relatively early on as a barren woman. She can't have kids, and this, 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 I thought, would play really well in Epidavros in the in ancient times, but doesn't really play very well now. I mean, the idea that because a woman won't have children or can't have children, she's somehow damaged and not really a woman, doesn't play so well today. Again, what would Aristotle make of the Black Widow story?
0: well that that's a that's a that's a really great question i mean I, I when I first saw that, I thought that in order to make the stakes high, they have got to finally kill some of the characters. But I think Aristotle would say that is quite cruel and reveals some of the cruelties in Aristotle and some of the differences between us and him, if you like. I think he would say that the thing about Black Widow is that she is a kind of ruined person. So, her barrenness is a a symptom of the terrible trauma and suffering she had growing up as a kind of trainee secret agent, and the fact that she is kind of a a, a broken person. And as a broken person, she could never achieve the kind of happiness and uh, fulfillment that Captain America can. And so, in a way, her sacrificing herself in death is, is the best thing that she can do. Now, that reveals a very cruel sense in Aristotle of, you know, who gets to be happy and flourish and who doesn't, and a sense very different from our sense. There's
1: several thousand years before feminism turns up, Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. So, you but, know. It's,
0: but it's not, I'm afraid with Aristotle, it's not just about feminism, it's about all sorts of people. Another difference is about um, enslaved people. I mean, Aristotle very famously wrote a defense of, of enslaving people, and he thought that if you were enslaved, you were a slavish person.
1: Well, I suppose what we could do is we could sit Aristotle down and say, "Now you need to watch one division because here is a <laughs> person, here's a broken person who remakes herself and her world firstly out of grief and trauma, you know, and, and her inability to accept what's happened to her, and then as a kind of form of triumph." And I, I was sort of thinking of trying to put my ancient Greek head on, and the idea of the story of a witch bewitched just seems really quite fascinating. It is the sort of thing you could imagine, you know, the idea that uh, you know, a young witch is herself bewitched and is herself set against her own interests and breaks out of it through her own growing choices. You can't, well, can choices go, I don't know, out of her own growing abilities and understanding of self.
0: Oh, yeah. So uh, without wanting to get carried away, I, I loved WandaVision, but I-, I, felt yeah. it was, I felt it was much more, um, please don't shout at me, it was much more platonic. Because it was, exactly, okay. it was exactly about her movement from ignorance and delusion, as it were, out of the cave of the, <laughs> out of the cave. There's literally the a
1: cave, cave in it as well. There yes, is literally, literally a cave.
0: That's right. And the TV shadows is like the shadows on the cave wall, which deludes us all. Okay. So it's her self-delusion. And she climbed out of that into understanding what the reality was. So I saw that nice. as a kind of a, a, a platonic story of moving from illusion to reality, from ignorance to knowledge. And when she had the knowledge, as, as it is for Plato, she sort of became who she was. She became herself, because Plato, everyone always says Plato hates art and so on. What Plato hates is us not being ourselves. And we're full of delusions and lies by th- Coming out of the cave and achieving knowledge, we become more fully ourselves, and that's what happens to Wonder, I think.
1: Robert, this has been fantastically interesting. I have one final question for you: Does all this mean that Stanley and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko are the equals of Aristotle in their understanding of the human spirit,
0: soul, and journey? I love Stanley, and I love Steve Ditko, and I love I love Marvel. I think not. I think but I think there are two mm-hmm. really interesting things. The first is of course they're pla they're interested in actions. They're interested in people's choices. Okay? And they're interested mm-hmm. in creating these big characters that are that do things or choose to do things or not to do things. And once you start doing that, you're in kind of Aristotle Greek tragedy world. But the other thing I think is really interesting, and you'll have to excuse me for doing a bit of um, talking about my own neck of the woods is that in the 40s and 50s and 60s all sorts of academics were writing Aristotelian kinds of literary criticism and that writing went on to influence people like Robert McKee and the people who it's a great film script writing guru and the people who came to write films mm. so we're seeing now in the this the craft of film writing the Outpouring of intellectual work by boring academics in libraries about Aristotle.
1: Yeah, that it's kind of devolved down to them through numerous different sources. The way that pop culture works is that pe- people do what feels right. It feels like the right thing, but maybe they don't know why it feels right. And at root are all these things that you've discussed, which it are the moral quality and the character evincing oh. itself through action. It's
0: dead interesting. It is. I- Okay. okay, I was going to say one more thing about about pleasure, which is a thing that people are often snooty about the the comics and Marvel films. But in fact, the, the pleasure they give is not just the special effects and the, the the tension of the plot, but is also in the discussion and thinking about what they mean, and that's part yeah. of the pleasure. And the fact that they have that huge reach that you began with is a sign that 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 they are achieving something and helping people think about what it is to be today.
1: Well, as an old school comics person like you, I'm just delighted that, you know, in the 21st century, it's possible to have an informed conversation with normal people out in the world in the pub when the pubs are open about the relationship between the vision and wonder. And, you know, uh, did you you know what's going to happen with Loki? I just think it's great. I feel like, you know, I feel like I've, uh, you know, somehow been given an amazing gift by the universe. But Robert, thank you so much for this. It's been really interesting. We're going to have to reconvene at the end of the next phase of the Marvel universe and work out what what Aristotle would have said about all that. Or maybe it's going to be platonic. I don't know. We'll find out. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciated it.
1: And listeners, thank you for listening. There's going to be a new Bunker every Monday to Thursday, as usual, and on Saturday. So don't forget to follow us on your favourite podcast app. And back us on Patreon, too, to get the podcast early and without adverts. Search Bunker Patreon Podcast. Very easily to search that one. We hope you've enjoyed this one. We can do this all day. We'll see you next time.
0: The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jan Sofraniewicz, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Will Return.